Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. We actually have the treat of uh, hearing from Pastor Brad. Brad and his wife Carol have been a really valued part of our church community for a while now, and um, yeah, I'm really excited to hear from him. So, Brad, I'm going to hand it over to you. Thanks, Sophie. Well, um, this is a new experience for me because uh, we've attended here for uh, for a year and a half, and. Um, I'm still getting to know people, and uh, I don't know if uh, if uh, anybody, you know, w- we have a fairly young crowd around here, except for a couple of us with silver hair, and uh, so uh, it's really refreshing to be part of this congregation, and uh, if you're like me, um, I so very much appreciate Pastor Jason and Adriana, and uh, they have been a huge blessing in my life, and I suspect for many of you the same is true. Am I, am I right? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, my name is Brad Julin, and uh, I've been a longtime pastor, and in recent years I've served a number of churches in the local area here as transitional pastor. Um, my wife Carol and I live close by here in Langley, and uh, I was saying to someone during the greeting time that uh, we figure it's about a minute and a half by car and uh, 10 minutes by walk. So uh, it's really nice to be uh, close to a church. I served a church not long ago uh, uh, out in Chilliwack, so that was a long commute. Um, We love to take long walks at Campbell Valley, and we have three adult children who are all married and seven grandchildren. So... um, And this morning, um, I'm not continuing in Pastor Jason's series. Uh, I felt like uh, uh, I got got an email from Jason uh, late on Friday night, so I I thought maybe it would be better if we just take a different direction this morning, and that's what I'm going to do. So, uh, and I'm I'm not going to use my normal style of preaching. Normally, I would preach through a book uh, and... uh, might take us a while if I tried to preach through a book this morning. So I'm choosing to speak from the message paraphrase by Eugene Peterson, and I hope that you'll see some familiar things in a new way and that you, it will strengthen your faith and confidence. In the late 1960s, a new art form uh, began to take shape uh, in the United States. It was reviled by many and understood by few. It was practiced in secrecy in order to be known to the world. It was a crime to some and art to others. It was called graffiti. I'm not here this morning to advocate for graffiti, but most of us have come to think of graffiti simply as vandalism. But how you view it is greatly determined by your background. So I'm going to invite you to take a journey with me this morning into a subway tunnel. And perhaps we will discover that as followers of Christ, we have more in common with graffiti artists than you ever imagined.
Modern graffiti had its roots in Philadelphia in the late 1960s. At first, um, it was simply a few people writing or spraying their nicknames or tags, as they are called. Um, and, um, and then if you spray a, a whole lot of, of your tags around, that's called bombing. So bombing the city with your tags. In the uh, 70s, graffiti took off in New York City. The form it took has become known in art history as the New York School. Did you know that? It has influenced graffiti art around the world. And the first thing that we need to understand is that graffiti is about attention and recognition. In the dark world of the inner city, graffiti became a way to make a name for yourself, to be significant in a countercultural way. Even from the start, odd names with numbers were used as tags to create curiosity and to gain recognition. They obviously couldn't use their real names, so they used nicknames. And one of the first of the kings of graffiti was a guy whose tag was Tacky186. Tacky was a family nickname, and 186 was the street he lived on. He was a messenger who rode the subway, and, and he bombed the city with his tag while he was working. The newspapers picked it up, and his fame spread. Another way of gaining attention and making your presence known was by the sheer number of tags that you bombed around the city. And so that led to a massive increase in graffiti painting. But as the volume increased, then... Writers needed to develop new ways to make their tags stand out. And so they began to develop calligraphy and designs. And so graffiti started to shift from being mere vandalism to being art. An entire graffiti subculture started developing in New York City with its own rules and values. Fairly quickly, the focus shifted from walls to subway trains. In the ghetto values of the graffiti subculture, greatness was measured as much by the risk involved as the artistic talent. And so by tagging subway cars, an artist's work would travel around the city until it was pulled off the line and cleaned. And the presence of the transit police and the proximity of moving cars made it riskier and more respected. The drive to gain people's opinion, opinions and attention continued to drive change, and the next development in graffiti was a change in scale. The uh, artists found larger spray nozzles to spray paint with and increased the size of their letters and designs until they were able to paint the full height of a subway car. And then graffiti crews, rather than individuals, worked as teams so they could paint whole subway cars. From 1975 to 1977, graffiti reached its peak in New York. The transit authority couldn't afford the security to guard the trains or the manpower to clean up the painted cars. And some graffiti teams managed to paint an entire subway train in a single night. But in the 1980s, graffiti began to decline. The Transit Authority increased its budget for security and began pulling graffiti cars off more quickly. And the risks involved and the brief lifespan of the art began to reduce the number of artists. In May of 1989, the Transit Authority declared victory over the graffiti movement. 
and announced that no more marked cars would run on the line. Most graffiti shifted back to walls and over to freight trains. But few, a few diehard artists believed that all that graffiti was fake, that the defining medium of the art is the subway car, and so they continued to wage their artistic war with the New York Transit Authority, even though their works either never or only briefly appeared. That's the history of the origin of modern graffiti. Well, if you have waited for a train at 200th Street or on Fraser Highway as it went by and a freight, car, freight cars went by, I bet you saw all the graffiti on the freight cars. Wait, this is the part where you go, oh yeah, I've done that. <laughs> Hello, are you there? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, if you're like me, you're going, what is that? It's really hard to figure out sometimes what it represents. And, um, but Graffiti has been used by gangs to mark their turf and political activists to make a statement, but as an art form, it's characterized by three things. The first is this, it's underground art. The artist is never seen, but he is known by his work. The art is making his presence known. Secondly, it's countercultural art. It's the sign of another culture that lives by a different set of values. The dominant culture owns the billboards and sells the TV and internet ads. It promotes its values and doesn't want to hear from those who reject its value system. But you see, what is seen as vandalism by the dominant culture is viewed as art by the graffiti subculture. To those who own property, it's a crime. To those who cannot afford property, it's a statement that they exist and that they count too. Thirdly, it is identity art. Graffiti is always about a name. The name is the art. So when you see those funny letters and things on the side of a freight car, what you're looking at is usually a nickname. The letters are sometimes hard to figure out. The name may be unknown to us, but it's pointing us to someone. And the name is usually telling us something significant about that artist. In Psalm 17, David records a prayer to God. The circumstances in which it was written are not preserved for us. But it's clear from the passage that it was a time of danger and opposition and difficulty from people seeking his destruction. It's hard for us to understand how God works sometimes. His willingness to allow people free choice is actually astounding. Because the choices of others affect us. Evil and suffering is often allowed to flourish in this world. Right? Prayer for relief sometimes goes unanswered, and at times it may seem that God has hung up the phone and left town. And so David prays for the defeat of his enemies and for God to act and to bring justice. But knowing that God is not in as big a hurry as he is, he prays for one more thing. He prays for God to paint some grace graffiti on the wall. 
Listen as I read from Psalm 17 from the Bible paraphrase, the message by Eugene Peterson. Listen while I build my case, God, the most honest prayer you'll ever hear. Show the world I'm innocent. In your heart, you know I am. Go ahead and examine me from the inside out. Surprise me in the middle of the night. You'll find I'm just what I say I am. My words don't run loose. I'm not trying to get my way and the world's way. I'm, I'm trying to get your way, your word's way. And I'm staying on your trail and I'm putting one foot in front of the other and I'm not giving up. I call to you, God, because I'm sure of an answer. So answer, bend your ear, listen sharp, paint grace graffiti on the fences, take in your frightened children who are running from the neighborhood bullies straight to you. This morning, I invite you to join me in looking at some grace graffiti. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we are asking you to open our eyes, to see things that you are doing and have done and desire to do in this world. Lord, we are longing to see you move in this community. And so we invite you to speak this morning and to demonstrate your grace and your power in this world around us for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This psalm starts in a surprising way. David's prayer begins like a scene from a TV courtroom drama. He says, listen, while I build my case, God, he's a lawyer presenting a case to the one who judges all things. Something has gone wrong in the city. People are getting away with murder. Justice is nowhere to be seen, and he's asking the judge to bring justice. He's asking God to show up and investigate the situation and put a stop to evil. He's asking God to make his presence known. But David recognized that if you ask God to investigate evil and bring justice, the first place he's going to start is with you. He says, go ahead, examine me from the inside out. Surprise me in the middle of the night. You'll find I'm just what I say I am. You know, I don't think that's a claim of perfection. It's a claim of authenticity. He has acknowledged his sin in his life. He has turned away from the things in his life that he knows do not honor God. He's not playing games. If you had a hidden video camera in his house, he'd be the same person in the privacy of his home that he is in public or at church. And I think that that should cause us to pause and ask ourselves how we are doing in that area right now, compartmentalizing our lives is a temptation for all of us, isn't it? To appear one way in one group and another way in another People who don't stand for anything never have to worry about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is only a temptation to those who choose to take a stand for something. You see, we are all tempted to talk a better game 
than we actually live. And you can say amen if you want to. To be more concerned about pleasing people than pleasing God. But God does see us at night and in private and when we think no one is looking. And He desires truth in our inner being. And God doesn't play favorites. If you want God to judge evil and deal with injustice in the world, if you want God to deal with that ex who's hurting you, or the person who sexually assaulted you, or the boss who ruined your chance of promotion, you need to be aware that he has an irritating tendency to start with us first. First Peter describes the trials and suffering of God's people as something that we should expect in life. It's a painful process intended to purify and deepen us. See, we think that God should deal with the blatant evil out there. But Peter says he usually begins with his own people. David recognized that calling on God to stop evil in this world did not exclude him from his own prayer. We are not the righteous judge. And, and that calls for humility and self-awareness and authenticity when we pray for justice. Christians can be as much of the problem as anyone else. We're just usually less obvious about it. Having acknowledged God's right to test his life, David now asks God to show up in the neighborhood. And the first thing David asked God to do is a graffiti bombing. He asked God to paint grace graffiti on the fences. The NIV says it this way, show the wonders of your great love. Show the wonders of your great love. What is David asking God to do? Well, here's my take on it. He's asking God to do some underground art. He's asking God to reveal the presence of the unseen artist. God, we can't see you right now, but we will know you are here by the works that you are performing. You know, friends, prayer week, as Sophie mentioned, is about asking God to move in this church and in this broader community. Are we not praying for God to paint grace graffiti on the fences of this neighborhood? For him to show up and to reveal himself in our world? David is saying, God, we can wait for you to judge things as long as we know you're here and you see and you care. And we need to see evidence of your grace. We need to see your grace graffiti on the fences. And when we ask God to paint grace graffiti, in David's case, he's in a difficult situation and he's longing for God to show up and to give him hope and courage and strength to carry on, to endure. But asking God to paint grace graffiti isn't all um, about getting through difficulty. It's also longing to move forward and see the power of God impacting people's lives setting people free, healing people. 
without evidence of God's presence, it's hard to endure. It's easy to begin to lose hope. And when things are hard, the one thing we need most is hope. The second thing David is asking God is for some countercultural art. He's asking God to reveal the presence of a different kingdom with a different value system. The values of the kingdom of God run directly opposite the values of much of our world. God calls his people aliens in this world. Our true citizenship isn't here. And David is asking God to leave evidence of that different world and that different way of living to encourage his people to keep on living in a countercultural way. Isn't that what we're called to do? How difficult it is not to simply blend in, but to live in a countercultural way by, the, by our love by our acceptance of people with all of their junk because we know how much junk we have. To live for that stuff that has little value in this culture but will be of infinite value in eternity. The third thing David asked God to do is identity art. To reveal the character of the artist king because graffiti is not art for art's sake. It's always about a name or a nickname. It always points you to the artist. You know, I was meeting some of the worship team. This is the first time I've been introduced to some of them. I discovered they go by nicknames. Have you met Biggs yet? Where's Biggs? Where are you hiding, Biggs? You're around here somewhere. Yeah, they go by nicknames. Nicknames are interesting. They're given or taken to describe who we are or how we are known. Fighter pilots always have a call sign or a handle. The French call it the nom de guerre. You don't say on the radio, hey, Bill. You say, Maverick, watch your six. Or Viper, he's coming around on you. The call sign is a nickname that's supposed to capture some aspect of your character or your ability. Graffiti is a call sign. It's a nickname. It's a handle. It's a nom de guerre. It is a nickname that tells us about the character of the artist. And when David asked God to paint Grace Graffiti on the fences, what he's asking for is for God to reveal who he is in the neighborhood and what he is like. He's asking God to show his power and his mercy and his love in a world that doesn't believe that he really exists. And the rest of this psalm is about how he would like God to do that. You know, in the Old Testament, we find an astounding example of God writing graffiti. The people of Israel were in captivity in Babylon because of their sin and idol worship. It was kind of like having the hell's angels take over the church. Um, Babylon was a nation of great violence and cruelty and the people of Israel were slaves in it and God basically I think was saying to them look you want to worship idols I will give you your fill of it you will find out what it means to live for your own desires you will experience the degradation and the evil in men's hearts when they worship anything other than me well after more than 65 years of captivity 
They'd had enough. And they were praying to return to the land. They were praying for God to move in their neighborhood. They were praying for God to release them from captivity. They were praying for God to write some grace graffiti on their walls. In October of 539 B.C., the king of Babylon was a man named Belshazzar. He was the son of a great conquering king, King Nebuchadnezzar. He decided to have a huge banquet with a thousand of his nobles. And Belshazzar called for the gold and silver goblets that had been taken out of the temple of God in Jerusalem and taken to Babylon. He called to bring those out in order that they could be used to drink toasts to the gods of Babylon. It was a symbolic act of the superiority of their gods over Jehovah. But suddenly, a human hand appeared in the air and began writing graffiti on the wall. It contained the following inscription, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the historic event from which we get our phrase of doom seeing the writing on the wall. The king froze in fear, his knees knocked together. He called wise men and astrologers to interpret the meeting, but no one could. And so Daniel, a servant of God, probably about the age of some of you young adults here, was called to come in. And he was offered a huge reward to interpret it. He declined payment, but he gave the meaning of the graffiti to the king. Daniel said, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven by toasting your God with holy things from his temple. You did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. And so here is what it means. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed in God's scales and found wanting. Parson means divided. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And Scripture tells us, friends, that that very night Belshazzar was slain as the Medes and the Persians slipped into the city of Babylon. You know what? God knows how to write graffiti. He was writing on the walls long before the New York City School came along. And if God wants to leave a mark on a person or a community or a nation, He knows how to do it. And He has the power to do it. And He is likely to do it in the most unexpected ways. And the very words that meant judgment for Babylon meant grace for Israel and the beginning of their return to the land. The writing on the wall of the palace in Babylon was underground art. It revealed the presence of someone unseen. It was countercultural art. It revealed the presence of a different kingdom and a different value system. And it was identity art. It revealed the holy character of the one who wrote it. There are many days when I ask God to paint grace graffiti on my fences. I want God to show up. I want Him to reveal His presence in my life 
in my family, in this church, in the community. I want him to set some things right. I want him to reveal his love by fixing things. I want his justice and power to be seen. I, I want to see his call sign all over this community. I want the reality and the values of his unseen kingdom to be revealed on earth. Isn't that what we mean when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, come and move. Move in this, in this nation. Move in Langley, Lord. Set prisoners free. Give sight to the blind. Extend your hand to perform signs and wonders among us. Sometimes something is so familiar we don't even notice it. It's there. We don't notice that it's there anymore. You know, it's like, uh, have you ever had a car with, uh, probably this never happened to any of you, you have a car that has a dent in it. And after a while, you don't even notice it. But you go to pick somebody up and they go, oh, man, what happened to your car? And you go, oh, 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 that was a long time. Sometimes we need God to paint fresh grace graffiti on our fences. Sometimes we just need him to open our eyes to the signs of his presence around us. You know, we had baptism here in the last month. That was grace graffiti, friends. That was God writing his name on people's lives. And those testimonies was speaking of how God had begun to set them free and to change them. Psalm 19 describes some of God's graffiti to us. It says, God's glory is on tour in the skies. God crafts and ex is exhibit across the horizon. Madam Day holds classes every day. Professor Knight lectures each evening. Their words aren't heard. Their voices aren't recorded. But their silence fills the earth. Unspoken truth spoken everywhere. The sun, moon, and stars are God's graffiti. They're Madam Day and Professor Knight silently lecturing us on the existence of the unseen creator who is known and seen by his work, by his graffiti in the skies. If you want to begin to get an idea of the might and power of God, you should look closer at creation. One of my hobbies is astrophotography. You see, there are two ways to catch faint light from distant stars. Uh, one is to get a bigger telescope. And uh, the bigger the telescope, the bigger the mirror or whatever, the more photons it catches. And so then it focuses it at the eyepiece and you can see fainter things with a bigger diameter telescope. I used to have an 18-inch telescope. <sighs> but you know, as you get older, your eyes don't see as well. So there's another way to see faint things. And that is to stick a camera on the telescope and catch those photons over time so they keep adding up. Digital camera is wonderful. It all just, it all just keeps catching it there as long as you leave it pointed at the right spot. And you're able to see things that you can't see with the, the human eye. Here's a picture. Go ahead. There we go. M13. This was actually taken right here in Langley. 
Um, it is a globular cluster. Everybody, this is something you want to go home with and make sure you remember, a globular cluster. They're balls of stars in our galaxies. There's like 150 of these balls of stars around the edges of the Milky Way. Milky Way is our galaxy. They estimate that this ball, oh, no, go back. We're still on the glob, there we go, yeah. They estimate there's a half a million stars in that ball. If you lived on a planet near one of those stars, it would be daylight all the time because there's stars all around you, suns. Well, the next one is the Andromeda galaxy. Go ahead, Peyton. Yeah, there we go, Andromeda galaxy. This is the only object that is visible to the naked eye, and you have to be at a really dark site to see it, but it's the only object outside of our galaxy that is visible to the naked eye. It's a neighboring galaxy. It's the Andromeda galaxy, and, um, and they estimate that this has probably a trillion stars in it. And this is very similar, we think, to what the Milky Way looks like. Now, um, in 1995, astronomers decided to point the Hubble Space Telescope uh, and its 7.8-foot diameter mirror uh, at a tiny patch of the sky that was pretty much empty. And they decided, let's just leave the camera open and see what happens. And the picture that came up was, this is just a portion of the picture. I blew it up and zoomed in a little bit, but in the image that they took, now wait a minute, the area of the sky is the size of a dime held up 75 feet away. So if you stood near that wall and had somebody else hold up a dime on that side and you look, the area covered by that dime 75 feet away from you is the area of the sky that was covered in this image and they Everything in that picture, except for that spiky thing right in the lower center left there, everything is a galaxy. There's, there's only one individual star in that picture. 1,500 galaxies in that tiny spot, each with billions or trillions of stars. And then they were so amazed with that picture, they decided, let's do it again, but let's leave the telescope on longer. And so in 2003 and 2004, they took exposures that added up to 277 hours or 11.6 days, covering an area that covers a nickel held up, 70, so a little bit bigger, 75 feet away, hold up a nickel, that's the area of the sky, and this picture is the ultra, Hubble Ultra Deep. That's not the whole picture, it's, it's most of it, and they estimated 10,000 galaxies in that picture staggering. The deeper we look in space, the more vast creation is seen. God's graffiti reveals his identity. The universe shouts his call sign, Almighty One. Incarnation is another word that we use for God coming in flesh, becoming a man, and that too is graffiti. Jesus walked the earth to show us that God is here and in his countercultural upside-down kingdom, what it's like. It's a kingdom where the first are last and the last are first, where the servant is the greatest of all. It's a kingdom where only those who come like children can enter and those who think they know it all like adults are rejected. It's a kingdom where he who saves his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for the sake of Christ will find it. 
And reading through the Gospels is like watching a, one subway car after another going by, each splashed with new graffiti that points us to the artist. One has water turned to wine, another is a stormy sea turned calm, another is filled with the lame and the sick and the blind and the deaf rejoicing over their healing, and each mural has the artist named Jesus on it. You know what, friends? That is graffiti we can point people to. It is God revealing himself in history. I think i got to skip ahead here, friends. One other place where God's graffiti can be seen is his transformation of people's lives. There is a lot of graffiti walking around here today. His name is written on fences of flesh, on us. Some of those fences were shattered. All of us were filthy, but He washed us clean, and He is repairing what has been broken. He is turning us into His artwork. You know what? We are counter-cultural billboards of the unseen kingdom of the Almighty God signed by the Creator Himself. Can I say that again? We are, we are counter-cultural billboards of the unseen kingdom of the Almighty God signed by the Creator Himself. He loved you and me so much that He desires to come and live in you and me, setting us free from things that have controlled us and transformed us into His likeness. The changes in our lives are a story we can tell others about about a God who can change them too. You and I with our struggles and our mess are God's graffiti. We are the broken, undeserving objects of His grace, and we are signs to the world that if God could even love us, then just maybe He might love them too. Are you in need of a little grace graffiti today? Do you long to see signs of God's presence in your life, in your family, in your workplace, in your school, in this church, and in this world? God's graffiti brings hope. And that is what we are praying for this week. We are praying for God to show up in new and fresh and powerful ways and begin a new thing in people's lives. And the and the weird thing is, God responds to our faith, to our trust of Him to do these things. And so He invites us to be co-laborers with Him in prayer. His graffiti fills us with a sense of purpose and significance because even though our lives may appear to some around us to be wasted on religious nonsense... The signs of another kingdom mean we are building treasure that will last for eternity. 
The graffiti of the king means that the writing is on the wall for this world and its values. So I think we can pray. We can pray for God to paint some grace graffiti on our fences. And we need to pray as Jesus taught us. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Langley. In City Collective. In British Columbia. In my, in my family. In my life. We need to see evidence of God at work around us as we live out the countercultural values of his kingdom. And sometimes we need him to open our eyes anew to his works and his graffiti. But sometimes when the opposition is strong and the road is long, and some of you are in that place right now, we need God to write his name anew on our lives. And so like David, we pray. I call to you, God because I'm sure of an answer. So answer, bend your ear, listen sharp, paint grace graffiti on the fences. I'm going to ask the worship team to come as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we come to you today acknowledging our, our need of you. We invite you to come and to set prisoners free and to give sight to the blind. Lord, we ask you to extend your hand to perform signs and wonders among us and in the lives of people around us in this city. Lord, we are asking you to show up and reveal the, the unseen kingdom. Lord, we give ourselves to you today and long for you to do what you desire to do. Thank you, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.